We are now studying the fifth chapter of Mesilat Yisharim. And this deals with what's known as the Mafside Hazahirus Varachoka Mehem. The things which cause a person to lose Zahirus. As we've discussed many times, Zahirus, the word, is taken from the Hebrew word which means radiance or light, light, Zohar. Zahirus allows a person to cast light onto his life and be sighted in everything that he does. Now, let's stop for a moment and discuss the idea of sight. On my trip to South Africa, I was on the plane with a ophthalmic surgeon. And we talked about eyes for a while until he went into the cockpit to watch the plane land. I mean, that's not fair. It's just not fair. He tests the eyes of pilots, so he's like in with all the pilots. So when you got into the plane, you like sent a note saying, Hi, I'm here. So, <laughs> so they called him in so he could land and see how like, the plane landed. And I thought that was grossly unfair. Favoritism. There's something called visual acuity. The visual acuity means that you've got the capacity to see the outline, the boundaries of a given form. And that's why when a person goes for an eye test, the way you test a person's accuracy of vision is by his ability to read the outlines of letters. The smaller the letters are, the harder it is to see when they begin and end. And often if a person is short-sighted, so the letter blends in with the background, you can't see the precise delineation of the form. In other words, accuracy in sight is the capacity to understand the outlying boundaries of the given object and the contrast from the object to those around it, the background, and to see the object's beginning and end is called to see. If you can't see the beginning and end of an object, if you can see a vague, blurred shapes, so that's short-sightedness, and if you see just blackness, so that's blindness. And it goes from on a spectrum of more and more clear sight as you get closer and closer to precisely defining the outlines of the object. And therefore people who've got excellent vision can see at a great distance even the smallest shapes and the way they are differentiated from the shapes around them and their backgrounds. So sightedness is the capacity to see one object as an independent, as different from another. The distinction between two as it were. Often the idea of sight is spoken about in connection with chokhmah, wisdom. In fact, the wise man Shloyma Melech says chokhm einov b'roishoy. A wise man, his eyes are in his head. Where else could they be? In his neck, in his shoulder blade, in his ankle. The wisest of, all, wisest of all men. Why does he reiterate the fact that your eyes are in your head? What's the Havamina? Seemingly obvious. Elamai. What Shleim Amelech wants to teach us is that a wise man sees through his Seichel. He sees through his Chochmah. He sees through his intellect. So therefore, his sightedness is not his 
visual acuity it's his intellectual acuity which means as follows just like in the world of vision what gives a person superior vision is the ability to differentiate between the given shapes in the world of Chochmah a person who is sighted is the one that can outline the ideas precisely he can define the limitations and the boundaries of a given thought he knows when one concept begins and then when one concept begins when it ends and when the next one begins as an example if a person is not sighted in Chochmah and you ask him what does theft mean and he doesn't have an accurate vision of the idea the notion and concept of thievery he'll say I don't know when you go into a bank and you hold them up with a, a mask and a gun in other words he hasn't thought about he doesn't have a delineation of the idea so you'd say to him well, what happens if there's a pen lying on a table and you don't know who the owner is can you write yourself a quick note on paper that's next to it so you'll say yeah you don't have a gun you don't have a mask clearly that's permitted however if you define precisely the notion of theft which means the illegitimate usage of another's property the usage of another's property without prior consent so then it's clear that using another's pen will fall underneath the category of theft and therefore the precise definition of a given concept allows a person's sightedness in the way he lives his life the whole point of Zahirus is for a person to be clear about what is right and what is wrong what is true and what is false in order for a person to get there he needs to have a precise definition internally and externally by that I mean he has to have a knowledge of the value the value and the application to his own particular environment there's a value known as the concept is defined as the honoring of another in a way that if you would be in his shoes you would want to be honored yourself let's say that that's the concept but in my own internal world that needs to be also more pricey defined because even though that's a great abstract concept but that translates into the practical way of how do I say hello to Ruvain and it's even more detailed because Ruvain is there could be a spectrum of people Ruvain could be he could be a close friend he could be a vague acquaintance he could be a new member of the program and dependent on who he is will define the appropriate application of the Haftalerecha if he's a close friend so based on the dynamic between us I'll greet him in a particular way if he's a vague acquaintance maybe I want to increase the friendship between us so I'll add on some extra warmth if he's a new entry so I want to not only increase the friendship but take away his sense of alienation and welcome him so I may even give him a hug under extreme circumstances and therefore you see that the klal of has different applications and unless those applications are precisely defined in my behavior and the living out of life 
I will be blind to what to do unless I go ahead and I see Chochamein of Beroshoi how to see what to do based on my understanding that I have in my mind. And therefore, the first step of the Heretz which we discussed in previous Shi'urim is the acquisition of that knowledge and the understanding and contemplation of its practical application in day-to-day life. Essentially what we have to do is we have to accumulate a knowledge base whereby the concepts of right and wrong in their entirety are at our disposal and then we have to go through the process of understanding ourselves in our particular environment, situation, potential as people and interpret or rather apply those principles to our daily life and then we will not stray from expressing our deepest potential in aligning our lives with the ultimate will of the Creator which is quite an achievement and obviously is not done in the first three sessions of a Musa Shir in the center program. Are you following me? Judging by the dull expressions on your faces seems as if this is very accurate, but almost, almost unbearably boring. So what I'd like to do is perhaps spice it up with a, with a, with a small anecdote about, about the nature of human endeavor and show how the precise definition of a concept will assist a person in moving forward. The Rabbeinu Yonin Shirei Tshuva introduces us to a guidance from the Torah in the construction of our internal world. The verse says as follows, Ki And you will go out to war, V'ra'isa, Sus V'rechev, And you'll see a horse and a chariot. Amrav Mimcha, a nation far greater than you. Says the Torah, Loi Sira Mehem, do not be afraid of them. It's a very, very strange Isur. Don't be scared. What do you mean don't be scared? I'm a soldier in an army and I see the opposing force. And they are way, we are way outnumbered. They are armed to the teeth. Every one of these mighty brutes, apart from the fact that they're all seven foot four, well trained not only in ninjutsu but in 3,000 other martial arts are, have, are carrying a variety of different weapons of war including rifles with infrared sights and I'm along with my friends and there's a group, uh, a motley crew of 30 of us versus 10,000 of them and you can just imagine the scene as we approach one another and I've got a sword perhaps, or even a gun, ready to shoot, and I see them approaching me. The natural reaction is, my heart will be filled with fear, because I realize that the chances of survival are extremely slim. So it comes along the Torah at that point, and says, Loi sira mehem. You are not allowed to be scared. Not allowed to be scared? What do you mean not allowed to be scared? How can I not be scared? It's terrifying! I'll be possessed by fear. There was a man many years ago, possibly in the 1950s, that experienced 
extreme financial difficulties. You can just imagine the scene. As going through his books, he realized that he owed hundreds and thousands of dollars many, many years ago, when hundreds and thousands of dollars was a lot of money to owe. And he goes through his books and he sees that the, the situation seems to be hopeless. And he gets overcome. He gets so depressed, he actually doesn't know what to do. He, it seems as if there's no, there's no hope for him. It's, just, it's uh, unsurmountable. How can he possibly overcome the challenges which lay? He, he, he decides that's it. He's gonna, he, can't, he, can't, he actually cannot carry on living. And he decides to put an end to his life. He leaves his office and walks down into the street and as the car is passing by he almost doesn't even hear the, the whizzing of the engines and the hooting of the horns and he heads towards a small park nearby and he sits down dejectedly upon the bench and he's sitting there looking absolutely miserable and a well-dressed man comes over to him and says Good morning, my friend. May I sit down next to you? He barely, barely shrugs a reply. The man sits down next to him and he says, Friend, you look, you look alone, you look dejected. What's up? And he says, nothing. He says, come on, he says. I'm willing to listen to you. I've got time on my hands. And at that point in time, something cracks inside of him and just bursts into tears. And he just unloads this whole story on the stranger. And the stranger sits there listening patiently. And at the end of the cathartic expression of his problems, the stranger looks at him and he says, I like you. And he takes out from, his, from the pocket of his jacket a checkbook, takes out from the top pocket of his shirt a fountain pen, and he writes a number, an amount on the check, and signs it. He folds the check in half, places it, places it in the man's hand, and puts the check back, back, checkbook back, gets up and says, I wish you well, and oh yes, I've given you a present. Use it wisely. Let's meet again in this spot in a year's time. I want to see how you've used the present I've given you. And the man's a little bit bewildered. A stranger walks off and he unfolds the check that's been given to him. And he sees the then astronomical amount of $500,000 signed John Rockefeller. He sits there for a few minutes, absolutely enraptured by what the change that's happened in his life. And slowly but surely, from deep within, the wellsprings of hope start to gush forth. And he feels the check in his pocket and he says, Do you know what? Do you know what? With firm resolve, I'm going to see if I can get myself back on my own feet without spending this check. I don't need this check. Let me see if I can do it myself. He gets up from the bench as if a different man and starts to head directly back towards his office. Looks at his books again. Sees exactly how much he owes his creditors and starts to strategize 
a way of the repayment of the loans based on certain new ideas he could perhaps introduce into his business starts to phone up his creditors and and starts to bargain for more time to pay them off and manages to put them at bay for the next six months and then he starts to work furiously and slowly but surely things start to turn over for him and he starts to the profits start to come in he starts to pay back one creditor after another and before long he's in the black he's cleared of his debt in another six months time he's making a huge profit and you can imagine the joy that he takes his check that he hasn't spent puts it in his pocket and heads back towards the bench in that park just near his office a year later waiting to meet the man who gave him the check that changed his life and he's sitting on the bench and he's looking around and no one's coming he's wondering maybe he's forgotten a busy man and as he's sitting there thinking, a woman, clearly a nurse, comes up to him and says, Sorry, have you seen one of our, one of our patients has escaped? <laughs> so the man says, No, I haven't seen anyone. He says, Well, he's dressed very well. He thinks he's John Rockefeller. And he's going around writing checks to people. <laughs> the Rebbeinu Yerna says, <laughs> He says, there's an Isodoraisa to relate to a situation from a perspective of despair. Not because we've got a mysterious benefactor that will put a check in our pocket, but because we have access to the creator of the world. And therefore, we are connected to the one who is omnipotent. And thus, there is actually no situation in the world regardless of its severity that can cause us to despair. Even though a sharp sword is resting on the neck of a man, you could get no more, one would think, inevitable cause of death than a person having a sharp sword thrust upon his neck. We're talking about seconds before his head is about to roll. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. But there's no hope. What do you mean? Of course there's hope. <laughs> he could make the ex the executor trip. He could make he could make anything. He could do anything. But the man could fall and the, the sword could stab him and he could be acquitted. There's never even the remotest possibility that could occur that Hashem is not directly in charge of. And therefore, if a person is connected to the Creator, the notion of despair and giving up hope is completely contrary to a Torah framework. It doesn't exist. It's an Isur Torah. Lo siro mehem! Says Rabbein Yonah. You're not allowed to be scared. Elo! Who's haonu Says Rabbein Yonah. We have been warned through this Isur. That when a sorrow, a problem, a difficult situation is close, to hear Hashem's rescue should be in your heart, and you should rely on it. Now, think about this. Without that piece of knowledge, the way one would approach life is radically different 
to the way one would approach life with that piece of knowledge. The, the sensibility, the being, the disposition of a person engaging life with that weapon of self is radically different from a person that, and this is a difficulty, a person who has a mix-up of concepts, a person who hasn't, doesn't have the ideas clearly delineated will say, well, I'm in trouble now. And the Rabbeinu Yunus doesn't say that it's dependent on a person's spiritual madrega. He doesn't say, and this prohibition applies to people who are tzaddikim and worthy of salvation. This is a prohibition for every Jew, even though you're a Baalavera. You still have to be careful about this. Which means an incredibly powerful lesson. A Baalavera who has the odds stacked against him has to know that not because of himself, but because of Hashem's love for him, he could be rescued in a second. And he has to rely on that. That's how he has to feel. Even though the situation seems completely insurmountable. And therefore you see that a person that lives a life without Zahirus, he lives in fact in a world which is dark and gloomy. Because he can't define how to see the world. He doesn't see things right. He sees threats as threats as opposed to opportunities. Springboards for elevating him ever closer to the Creator. And therefore, Zahirus is the lenses. It's the light. It's the way of seeing the world where just as in a person who has perfect vision he's able to see things accurately and when he sees he doesn't get confused between a horse and a donkey even he doesn't mistake a man for a pillar and a pillar for a man he doesn't think what one thing appears to be it is and what something is is not rather he sees things for what they are a person with the Zahirus sees the world the inner operating mechanisms of the creation with tremendous accuracy. And now what we're going to be discussing in Perak Hamishi is what blurs that vision. How does a person lose the clarity of that insight and how does he get sucked into misinterpreting? How does he develop intellectual and spiritual myopia not being able to see with clarity and that's the point of Perik Hamishi begins the Ramchal Hine, behold beginning of chapter 5 behold the things the mafsidim those which cause this middle to be lost and those things which cause this midah to be distanced. Heim Shlosha. The Ramchal, in his pursuit for clarity, will always number. Because, as we well know, in order to defeat, and as we see it more clearly as we describe Zahirus, that not only is the ultimate enemy of the Talmudic student vagueness, but essentially the ultimate enemy of man is vagueness because as much as a person is vague he can't really make a proper decision because he can't see what he's doing and he can't see what lies in front of him so vagueness is not only a problem when trying to analyze the subtleties of a sugya it's a problem when trying to do anything in life and the Ramchal is well aware of this and that's why he always numbers 
because once you attach a number to something you limit it you clearly define its parameters there are four problems here there are six difficulties and therefore he says in terms of the things which destroy and blur our vision of the heroes but as i look around me i see again the dullness in the faces has arisen before we continue it could be that the room is hot it could be the monotone it could be perhaps you're all just a bunch of slugs so I think perhaps it's appropriate to open up the door turn on the air conditioning get some fresh air to aerate your brains and um, that's it, that's the Hirus. And now we're going on to the Mafsida Zuhirus. And comes along the Ramchal and he says the Mafsida Hazirus are threefold. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Three. <laughs> Mafsida Three. There's three of them. What are these three Mafsida Zuhirus? He goes on, he elaborates each and every one of them. Ha'echod, one of the Mafsida Zuhirus. Who it is? Hatipu, taking care of the Hatir dog and being distracted by Haulamis of the world. In other words, two, the first of the matters of the the first of the causes of spiritual myopia, which cause us to lose the clarity of vision, which Zahiris brings with it is when a person becomes distracted by and involved with the world the world acts as somehow a fuzzer of our vision it's a new word fuzzer it makes our vision fuzzy a fuzzer you'd say in american fuzzer fuzzer it fuzzes our vision fuzzes our vision and um Therefore, therefore, one has to see what one can do to avoid this and retain the clarity. That's number one. Number two is Hasheni Aschoik, laughter, for Lotsoin. Lotsoin is sometimes translated as scoffing, mockery. In today's parlance, it's probably going to be translated as cynicism. We'd have to understand what schoik is as well. Does schoik mean all laughter? Is it wrong to have a good old guffaw with the buddies? Or is that perfectly permissible? And this again, we'd have to go for the clarity in delineating the boundaries of these concepts. And finally, the third part is hachevra hara, bad company. Yes, it's not only a good name for a pop group. It is in <laughs> fact a reality which completely and totally fuzzes our vision so those are the three things they are the involvement and the distraction of the world they are for lots of laughter and cynicism and they are bad company now we have to of course go into each and every one of those and see if we can translate what the Ramchal says in 18th century Italy into 2000 and Pashtus 11 Efsha 12 and we have to understand how does that tipple that Tirdoi Lomis deal with the notion of blackberries 
whose pastures are going to go under soon, more pertinently, androids.